You're listening to The Nerve, an English at WIT podcast. This is our once a semester episode entitled Books on the Nightstand, where I'm joined by staff members in different schools and departments across the Institute to talk about the books they're reading right now. We'll put a list of the books up on our podcast notes afterwards to help you with your Christmas gifting ideas um, because we like to offer these things to our listeners. So today we have a real School of Humanities lineup. We're joined in studio by Dr. Hazel Farrell, an analytical musicologist and lecturer in music in the Department of Creative and Performing Arts, and Philip Kremen, a lecturer in theology, and my English colleague, Dr. Christian Brune. And we are in applied arts, I guess. <laughs> so welcome, everybody. And ho, ho, ho to you all. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. And to you too. <laughs> Thank you very much. So it's great. We're all here. We've survived the semester. Um, life is, is pretty good, actually, this week, um, even though we're still under the weight of expectation um, and everything. But we're, we're here. We're here at last. And we're hoping that all our students are starting to become quite focused on their final assignments and their essays and their exams and everything. But that maybe they'll take a little break for half an hour to listen to us waffling on about books that we like to read. Um, so some of us are going to be talking about books that are related to our jobs and others are going to be just talking about um, books that they have started to read for pleasure. Um, so, I mean, there's no reason why those things can't overlap, hopefully, sometimes. And, and we're lucky in English, I guess, that that, that does overlap quite a lot. Um, but I might come to you, Hazel, maybe. Would you like to start? I don't know if you want to start with that kind of a, a more serious worky book or or if you want to talk about what you're reading at the moment. Okay, sure. Why don't I kick off with the serious one? Yeah. Um, so the serious one is uh, a book called Olive Smith, A Musical Visionary, and it is written by her daughter, Gillian Smith. So this is, um, it's quite a good one and uh, it's really engaging because it tells the story of this absolutely amazing lady who was uh, basically existing in the man's world and um, she was responsible for establishing the Irish Youth Orchestra and all also um, for launching these uh, coming out recitals. So she launched the careers of lots of different Irish classical artists. And um, she was very, very actively involved in the campaign for um, the National Concert Hall as well. And it's just that you don't usually hear her name. We usually hear the names of, you know, the the, music, the male musical giants like Frederick May, Brian Bordell, people like that. And um, then to find this book was uh, an absolute gem, really, uh, that uh, the fact that this strong lady was in there behind it all. So she was a musician herself. She was a pianist and a singer and uh, an an organist of uh, quite a high level. And uh, she went on then to um, uh, get her degree in uh, Trinity and then she began to work in uh, the registry, uh, registry's office or registrar's office there. So she had really good, strong organisational skills and then she be, became associated with the Music Association of Ireland. And this book is great. Like, you know, it can sound, it sounds a bit sterile, but it's great because there uh, it includes lots of correspondences like the letters that were going over and back between them and various politicians about getting funding and taking musical music seriously in Ireland and you know about the strong need to um, sort of promote music for the younger generation because they were going to be the future and all of that and you know how she set up the residential programme for the Irish Youth Orchestra where the most talented musicians in the country would go and they would spend you know a week there a couple of times a year and it was residential and they would get all the tuition and she minded them like she was the mother as well. And, and, and what period of time are we talking here Hazel? When she when was she? Um, well you're talking that um, the Youth Orchestra 
was established in 1970 right. and uh, then this is going back like you know from sort of around uh, the sort of 1930s onwards type of thing late 1930s onwards and uh, she was just so active there all the time but her name is never mentioned yeah. you know and just to have her letters and she was the one who kept all of the correspondences and there's fantastic photographs as well in there that just draw you into the experience you know so for instance they were trying to get this uh, new piano and they were after like they were begging for donations and they got this piano donated by this uh, lady um, Mayor was her name um, and her husband Olive had roped her husband into you know trying to plan you know logistically how they were going to manage this and he had sketched up this horse box design and you have the sketches of all of the stuff and then you actually see you come to fruition when the piano is in the back of it and this Lady Meyer who's making the presentation is stepping into the back of the horse box in all of her finery and getting the photographs <laughs> taken when it, so it's brilliant because you, you sort of get really um, sucked into the whole sort of uh, dynamic of the thing as well so uh, I think it's really quite good Yeah it sounds know? really good yeah, That yeah. sounds like a, a, a book that my father would love actually a notoriously mm. difficult man to buy for at Christmas time yeah, yeah. Um, So I mean, is it for a general readership, would you say? Is it for is it more for music students, do you think? Or is it, can I, anyone read this book? I think anybody can read it. You know, it's not necessarily for music students because there's no technical musical stuff in it. It's actually historical and it's about, you know, how do these things come about? It's an insight into the real struggles, you know, behind trying to get this national concert hall, trying to get, you know, uh, the people of Ireland, I suppose, to engage with classical music, bringing music into the classrooms. You know, she was the person who was pushing it through the Music Association of Ireland from a very early stage. So um, basically it just follows her journey and brings you right along with it. And the fact that she was such a strong female in such a male dominated uh, world and male dominated period, I suppose, as well, yeah. is, is really brilliant. And what did her know? daughter go on to do then? Do you know her? Her daughter, yeah, she's a really, really um, strong musician as well. She's very, very well known. Um, a pianist, uh, cellist, and uh, she actually plays a continuo harpsichord, you know, sort of Baroque period instruments as well. Wow. And she would have uh, done a lot of work with RTE and uh, she's really very well known. Very accomplished, too. yeah. Very accomplished. And, yeah. So, and so did she did she kind of write this all on her own or did she have someone to help her? Like is she, a, is she a writer as well as a musician? Well, she drew on all the records. So she went around and got all the records from Music Association of Ireland, from the youth orchestra, from everything. So she had like programme notes, she had plans, she had sketches, she had letters, all the correspondence and she brought it all together. And then she had input from different people who would have worked with her mother as well. And luckily, like I think what makes it so special is that she had such um, clear memory of her own childhood when all of these amazing musicians were being brought over and all of a sudden there was nowhere for her. the bus broke down there was nowhere for him to stay so she's like 30 musicians in her house and <laughs> things like that and then when the orchestra one of the orchestras came over from uh, England and they refused to play the national anthem and they'd only play the British national anthem and things like that wow. and there was like this national incident and all this over and back and but all the correspondences are there and it's, it's just fantastic you know That sounds fantastic yeah, Oh my God great. I'm going to buy this book So yeah. Olive Smith A Musical Visionary. Yeah, that is a fantastic book for all the the musos in yeah. your in your household. Like it, it sounds is. like something that would interest even people who are not kind of into that whole side of music. You know, people who are more into pop or rock or whatever. Yeah. but it it just sounds like something that is an accessible story. Yeah, absolutely. It's just great, and it's just a strong female. You know, yeah, which exactly. Is nice. Yeah, um, and I suppose something that I am reading for work as well is um, James Baldwin's novel Giovanni's Room. So this is something like, are you are you using that in on a 
on a module, Hazel, or anything? I take it into my Irish contemporary class. So the Irish contemporary looks at like Irish composers and mm. the Irish music scene. And it sort of shows about, you know, what composers are dealing with in Ireland and how to get their music out there. So this gives them a bit of historical context, you yes. know, and it shows them about these organisations who are advocating for them and who got us to this point, I suppose. Yeah. So that's how I draw it in, you know, to my own teaching. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. It's, do you use excerpts or do, do you expect students to read the whole thing? Or? No, they don't read the whole thing. Um, they have access to it because mm. I certainly make it available to them. But um, no, we just work through different passages and have a, a little uh, discussion on how this was achieved or what the situation was before this happened. And actually, really, it's an awareness of uh, the whole, I, I don't mean to bang it on about the the uh, female input. No, but, into it is. The, but it's one of those things where, you know, in music and particularly in that era, like, you know, the, the female wasn't strong at all so I do use it to make that point as yeah. well you know. yeah it's great it's great when you get a book like that um, and so this this book Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin is something that I'm interested in bringing onto the Literature and Society module in second year English um, because it's a module that all students take majors and minors um, and at the moment well not at the moment we're trying to kind of mix it up a little bit but um, in the past I suppose it has been one of those modules that's been a little bit guilty of being very kind of straight white male centred um, so we're trying to bring in alternative voices, I guess. And um, one of those is James Baldwin. So he was um, a black writer who was, you know, interested in um, talking about themes of race in his work. But also he was um, gay and he he's interested in, in looking at the experience of gay men and, and bisexual men as well. Not only black men, but also white men. And, and this novel is really interesting because it was written in 1956, but it was um, written with kind of primarily white characters, um, nearly all white characters, actually. Um, and so he, you know, this was before the gay, li- gay liberation movement um, in the States and it caused quite a stir, actually, because, you know, there are moments in it that are quite explicit. Um, you know, he doesn't shy away from those moments. Um, and it's also something that's very different from his own experience of growing up in Harlem. However, he did he did go outside the States and he went to he, he went to Paris and tried to experience life over there because he wanted to get away from all of the, the kind of the values, these American values values and and things that he felt were kind of oppressing him, I guess, um, and stopping him from really experiencing what life might be like for him, um, you know, a possibility that he might be able to achieve elsewhere. So this, it's funny because the, the idea of this mimics that that move that he made in that we have this character, uh, David, but he's a white American who travels abroad um, and he's living in Paris and he meets this Italian barman called Giovanni, who is very different from him, um, but he is immediately attracted to. He has this kind of just overwhelming desire for this man and he can't really kind of explain it. And it's a very tempestuous love affair. Giovanni also is, you know, ends up being quite distraught at certain moments in the novel and really needs him. And David just feels like he cannot be there for him. There's something cold at his core. And I think it's because he hasn't accepted himself as a gay man in any way, shape or form. Um, So the novel is very much a novel about about shame and what happens when shame creeps in and actually kind of creates this decay in in, in a person's soul, you know, because um, Giovanni doesn't feel any of that shame. Um, and he, he doesn't understand, you know, why anybody would, would do this to themselves and persecute themselves in this way. But um, David is kind of practically divorced from himself, really, in a way. He doesn't really seem to know himself at all. Um, and he 
yeah, he just lets that shame take hold, I suppose. So he tries to love this this girlfriend of his, Hela, who also arrives um, on the scene. She arrives back in the midst of this affair that he's having with Giovanni. So as you can imagine, that's not ideal. Um, it's it's you know it's no use. He cannot deny this part of himself. Um, as well as all of that, there is a murder thrown in towards the end of the novel. Um, and I won't kind of spoil anything, but that that really complicates things in a really interesting way. But but it is kind of where that it's all indicated at the beginning, actually, of the book as well, because at the beginning he's in this ha- house in the south of France and he's reflecting on his experiences with Giovanni and where it has led him. And essentially it has led him to a, a, a point of... Um, emptiness in a way, you know. Um, so you might kind of think, well, that doesn't sound like a very happy story that I want to read. <laughs> but it is really fascinating because this whole thing of drawing back the curtain um, and being able to look at yourself for, for what you really are uh, is is interesting, I think. Um, and it's also about what happens when an American person leaves home and they're like, I suppose that curtain is is fully down and, and somebody points it out. So Giovanni says to to him that to be American is, you know, with enough time and all that fearful energy and virtue, you people have um, that everything will be settled, solved, putting, put in its place. And when I say everything, I mean all the serious, dreadful things like pain and death and love in which you Americans do not believe. Um, so he really challenges this notion of um these structures that American people put in place to try and control the chaos of life, whereas Giovanni is all about chaos and understands that it's an inevitability. Um, And Hella says, too, Americans should not come to Europe. It means they never can be happy again. What's the good of an American who isn't happy? Happiness was all we had. Um, And there seems to be this clash between uh, this belief that you can choose to be good and choose to behave in the way that society expects you to behave. And that's that's actually something that you can choose to do. That's what David kind of believes. And then Giovanni says, that's ridiculous. You are who you are um, and you shouldn't actually have to apologise for it. So it's really like it has all of these themes going on in it. And something that's just really fascinating to me, I suppose, is is that notion that you know, you try to mask yourself almost for all these years. And at some point that mask is removed. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a text that I think might be interesting on that module. Um, when you look at other, you know, kind of coming of age novels that mm-hmm. tend to deal in similar things again and again and again, that this is a, is a challenge to that. So that's me banging on about that book. But I do think it's a good one. Um, again, a good one to kind of rediscover if you're, if you're not familiar with James Baldwin. Um, Krista, I might come to you for a second because I know you're thinking of changing um, a text on a module too and, and you want to talk about one of those books as well. Yeah, I'm going to talk about Reading in the Dark by Seamus Dean and again it's a coming of age story too and what brought that book to my nightstand I suppose was my last purchase which was Children of the Troubles by uh, Joe Duffy and Freya Clements which you've probably all mm-hmm. heard about it's a book that's really you know captured people at the moment um, of the 186 children who died during the Troubles and it really gives us an insight into what it was like during that time. So leading on from that, Seamus Dean's Reading in the Dark um, is a story of a young boy growing up in the Troubles 
Um, and first and foremost, it is a coming of age story. It's a buildings romance charting that, you know, the growth of the character from youth to maturity. And I mean, I love the title, Reading in the Dark, because I think we all maybe did that. Most academics were readers, weren't we, when we were younger? <laughs> time to read. And I'm sure a lot of um, our students feel like they're reading in the dark sometimes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the title operates on both levels, you yeah. know, because we're reading it going, what is really going on here? But, you know, he talks about being a little boy and he says, you know, I'd switch off the light and lie there. The book's still open, imagining the various ways the plot might unravel. So I suppose that's what brought oh, me yeah. um, into the book, you know, um, so on the one hand, you have this story of a young boy growing up in Derry. So it, it takes place from 1945 to 1961. Um, but on the other hand, then you have the spectre of war in the background and you're constantly reminded by the narrator um, of the conflict, of the troubles. And he talks about the dismembered streets and the city of bonfires. And, you know, there's this juxtaposition of the, uh, you know, the walls of Derry. And then you have this stunning coastal landscape, mm. you know, mm. and you really get an insight into what it must have been like growing up during that time. And, you know, Dean, for me, is a really interesting writer. So um, back to your point, Jenny, about new uh, books to put on the course. I'm bringing this into the um, first year introduction to Anglo-Irish literature because we usually look at Buildings Roman or coming of age stories. But this is uh, a really interesting one, I think, to explore. And whenever we think of the troubles, um, I suppose we think of Seamus Heaney writing The Troubles, mm. you know, and he he gently overshadows all of the other writers of the time. And just because I think he became the voice of The Troubles and a national poet, uh, whether he wanted that or not, you know. Um, so when we think of Memoirs of the Troubles, I tend to think of North, the collection yes. um, by Seamus Heaney. And, and, and the students will get that on another module anyway. So And, and Seamus Dean yeah. is, you know, is referenced in North too. So it's it's good for the students to get some context. Exactly. Yeah. And I think he is um, one of those writers that just didn't enter into the public conscious in the same way that, that Heaney did, you know. Um, even though he was an accomplished poet as well, he lectured in UCD. He was a contemporary of Heaney. They both went to... Uh, school together, the Catholic school, grammar school in Derry, St. Columns, um, and they remained lifelong friends. But yet mm. he's someone that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know, along with, say, Benedict Kiley's Prox Opera. I mean, these are all brilliant works that, you know, chart the troubles, but uh, we just don't have maybe the same recognition um, around them. So, you know, it's set in Derry in the 1940s and really gives us an insight into um, what life was like at the time. Um and I think it's an important book, you know, for that reason. Um, back to the theme you mentioned earlier, shame, secrecy. I think whenever we're talking about family dynamics, these topics always <laughs> come up, don't they? You know, and there's a big secret um, in the, the family, of course. Um, the little boy's father's brother, Eddie, has been accused of being a police informer and mysteriously disappears. Right. And I suppose that's a, you know, a situation that any of us who have read about the troubles or heard about the troubles were aware of these, you know, stories. And um, it turns out that he was killed in error. So there's a, a real sadness, a palpable sadness um, to the story. But it also brings us to that um, aspect of the troubles that Heaney talks about as well in that poem in, in North, Whatever You Say. Say nothing. Say nothing. Yes, yeah. you know, absolutely. So that's at the heart of it as well. But I think, you know, he moves from the political to the personal in that he, he charts the effect of this on his family. So um, it's a very complex narrative. Um, the the brother, the father's brother, Eddie, was not the informer. It turned out it was another guy, McElhinney, who uh, his mother had gone out with um, at a much earlier stage and she had warned him um, that he was going to be arrested. He was the real informer and he escaped to Chicago and the, uh, the I suppose, the 
Gildfelden on the brother and all of this is going on and the young boy learns about this and it creates this division in the family because the father never knows the, the truth and you know, when he finds out from his grandmother, he says, I left him. I went straight home where I could never talk to my mother or my father properly again. Oh. You know, and at one point his mother says to him, why don't you go away? I could look after your father properly for once without your eyes on me. Because of course she feels the weight of his knowing, you know, and the weight mm. of her guilt. And, you know, it ends then with the father's funeral. So I'm um, sorry to bring in such a sad story at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Chris- and I was thinking, Jenny, last year when we did something similar, I talked about the dead. I, I was know. Like, people are going to think I'm such an unhappy person. <laughs> but actually, it's a great story and well worth the read. It yeah. sounds brilliant. It sounds really good. And I think, yeah. you know, with Brexit looming and everything, I think, you know, some of these things so have true. more poignancy now than you know, than they have for a long time. And and it's an interesting thing for students to be able to look at something in, in its historical context, but also to be able to think about the ways in which it still, you know, has resonance today. Yeah. Um, and that sounds like it really does. And so does he talk about, you know, kind of watching those divisions, physical divisions kind of arise in the place where he grew up or, or it, does it get that far? Or yeah, does and it it's a first person narrative so it's from the child's perspective so he's talking about, you know, throwing stones at, you know, police cars and then we march down to the station by his father and the priest and and you, you get the sense of a child having fun and you're like, that's that's really poignant that that's your sense of fun. You know, so so their awareness of the conflict is always there. And of course, you know, his positionality is evident. He's a working class Catholic, uh, one of seven children growing up um, in the North during the Troubles. So on the one hand, you have, the, I suppose, the carefree um, attitude of children, but juxtaposed with this war zone. You know, yeah. and we have a whole generation who grew up in a war zone. And I suppose with Brexit looming, as you said, Jenny, it... it brings the North to the forefront of our minds because we mm. don't really know what's going to happen. No. And we certainly don't want to go back to that. No, absolutely not. Um, speaking of other types of wars, and they're a bit more fantastical, though. Uh, <laughs> can I come to you, Philip Kremen? How are you doing sitting over in the corner there? Very well, Jane. You're just, just minding yourself. Trying to mind myself here. You know, <laughs> I've, I've just been listening to the three of you um, and it's very impressive. But I suppose what I've been reading since the summer, um, which isn't that long ago, is... Um, the Lord of the Rings. The Lord series. of the Rings. Yes, yes okay. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and are you reading this from the point of view of kind of Christian mythology? Yes, and very much so. I the monomyth. Yeah, e- even in the words of Tolkien himself, you know, it's a fundamentally religious uh, work. Uh, and dare I say it, even uh, a Catholic work. Yeah. Uh, in that sense. But I think um, really what's at the heart of the Lord of the Rings was Tolkien's I suppose, desire to produce a mythology, a myth, a, a piece of myth. And for him, myth or a good myth holds a mirror up to up to humankind itself in the sense that it shows us ourselves mm. in some way. Uh, uh, sorry, not in just some way, but in a very deep way. Um, and in that sense, I suppose it's a very, perhaps, like, should I say, a, a realistic work. Uh, it's not to be understood as a kind of an escape from reality at all, actually, but rather a very fundamental engagement with reality at a very deep level. And in particular, um, while it's not an escape, uh, and then on the other hand, it is a type of an escape. Mm. It's an escape for Tolkien from what he calls materialism, Uh, since for Tolkien, really, materialism uh, turns life into a kind of a prison. And they're his own words. Um, because, of course, there is more to life than just the mere material. And for him, myth serves to point us 
I suppose, beyond the mere kind of material world that we live in. Um, so there's a there's a serious kind of transcendent aspect to his whole telling of the story yeah. in, in, as such. And we, we've talked, I've talked about Lord of the Rings in, um, in, in a module completely separate from this, which is narrative construction with applied computing and entertainment system students, where we talk about aspects of the monomyth and the hero's journey yeah. and, and looking at archetype as well in yes. that book, you know. Yeah. Um, and Gandalf as this kind of mentor figure yes. and then you have, you know, you have um, the Hobbits and Fro- your Frodo and Frodo and yeah and yeah so so they all kind of fulfil these roles these important yeah. roles and yeah. you know you can map them very closely I mean you, you you look at Frodo and the figure of Jesus Christ and, yeah. and you know they're they're doing essentially the same thing and they're doing the same thing that Harry Potter is doing and they're doing the same thing that you know the guy in Back to the Future is doing yeah. what's his name and, and all, yeah. all these you yeah. know all these other characters so it is it has a kind of a universal significance but also as you say there's something very you know, religious about this particular text. Yeah, I think that that's it's a deeply, yes, fundamentally a religious thing. And and the other thing I I think um, that's interesting about Tolkien actually is that the Lord of the Rings itself is not a formal allegory in the sense that, you know, we have, let's say, in the Chronicles of Narnia where we have Aslan, who is, you know, throughout the whole series, really represents Christ as such. But we don't get that uh, kind of formal representation in any one character with, with Tolkien. So, for example, uh, with Gandalf, uh, we, he's the wise one, he's the wizard, the wizard, he's the mentor, and so on. And aspects of of Gandalf actually does represent or reminds us of Christ. So, for example, he he dies at the at the bridge of Chasm Dún and. It's about 150 pages later before we realise we meet him again, but he's now the resurrected Gandalf. Mm. Um, so that there are parallels there. Uh, and he's not Gandalf the grey anymore. He's Gandalf the white. So he's to put the coat around him for his friends in order to see him. So there's a sense there, deep kind of biblical thing of this transfiguration uh, happening. Um, and, and the other key thing with Gandalf, I think, is, you know, he he loses his life for the sake of his friends. Mm. Uh, and again, that's that's kind of, that resonates very deeply in the Gospels, the idea of, you know, there's no greater love than a, for, than a man, for a man to lose his life for the sake of his friends. And again, the Christ figure um, uh, comes, comes to mind. But in addition, if I would say, um, one of the key kind of theological uh, uh, keys of the, of the whole series, to my mind, is the date that March the 25th, that date occurs a number of times. For example, uh, the ring is destroyed on March the 25th. Now, why is this date so important from a theological I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. I didn't know there was the a specific date. The 25th of March comes up. Um, and it's important from a theological uh, point of view for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, it's also the feast day of the Annunciation uh, in the church's calendar. Uh, you know, Mary getting word that she's to bear a son. Uh, there's the whole sense of Mary as being full of grace and so on. So there's a deep sense of the divine or God or the transcendent breaking into history in a very fundamental way. Um the other significance of, of March the 25th is that it is also uh, the date on which the original Good Friday actually uh, took place. So 
uh, early Christian antiquity had March the 25th as the date that Jesus is crucified. Really? The, the first Good Friday. Uh, and that's witnessed by, in the Gospels, by St. John and Mary, his mother, and so on. So the, that 25th of March, we have the destruction of the ring. We have the Feast of the Annunciation. We have the first Good Friday. Uh, and then we see that the ring itself becomes synonymous with sin and the destruction of the ring and the destruction of sin and death. They all happen on the same date in Mount Doom. So Mount Doom, in a sense, becomes Golgotha, right? The, mm. the, the day of the crucifixion. Um, so, so I suppose it, it's all of that really is kind of, that's kind of the patchwork or the, the, the backdrop to, I suppose, the ultimate drama, uh, as Tolkien would see it, for all our lives. The drama of sin and grace, life, death and resurrection, and the effects of the God-man, I suppose, of Christ has, and not just all of us, but also on the cosmos, in which in which we live, so th that's really the theological landscape. Uh, upon and so which that was just your bedtime reading. You did, there was nothing else going well, on. I you just wanted a bit of escapism, seriously, basically. Seriously, I, I, I can't. I, I don't know all the detail of this at all because I've only started to read this since since the summer, right? Yeah. And. Um, uh, that's it's, amazingly it's, uh, deep you know yeah. just uh, like I'll never look at it the same again yeah. I know actually I'm going to have to reread the whole series now yeah <laughs> thank, I, thank you you're, you're, God you're very welcome but there are other <laughs> dimensions as well like so there's the, the whole stuff uh, of, of, of that date but there's also a kind of a Christian understanding of what it means to be human uh, mm. I'll call it a theological kind of anthropology emerging uh, how can I put this um uh, I suppose since the Enlightenment um, and and the whole kind of approach of the scientific methodologies and categorization of all of nature and so on, um, the human being has been categorized as the Homo sapien. Sapien literally meaning the wise creature. But of course, for Tolkien, to to think that human beings are wise is is an absolute absurdity. Um, None of us are born wise, uh, is the point. Uh, it's not something that comes naturally to us. Um, we're, we're, we're clever, according to Tolkien. Um, we're clever, uh, we're a bit cleverer than the chimps. And the key, <laughs> the key thing here is really w is that we're not wise. Wisdom is something that comes to us over time. Um, and again, one of the key differences that emerges uh, from the, 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 the series is literally the difference between wisdom and and cleverness you know works uh, works are clever saurian is clever adolf hitler is clever and so on but none of these uh, characters are in fact wise um so so what what is uh, what is the human being if if it's not the homo sapien well according to tolkien it's more uh, accurately accurate to categorize the human as the homo viate in other words the the creature on the way Mm. And that becomes very clear if you look at the kind of the overarching theme. Mm. We're on the way, right? Yeah. It, um, and there's none of us that, that um, uh, uh, you know, we're not sure about the way. Uh, there are, you know, it's a perilous journey. There are demons, uh, there are dragons, there are sins. Uh, but we're on the way. And, and I think what he's trying to say is that we're on the way to live um, live our lives as a quest or a journey um, and to get, you know, I think that quest really is to be drawn into eternal life. And that brings me to the other key kind of theological kind of 
insight here for me is the difference between immortal life and eternal life. Um, uh, and that's that's kind of embodied very much in the elves, where he, he kind of portrays the elves. Um, how can I put this? Um, really, what 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 makes the elves different to the human is that the elves are immortal. Um, um, sorry, the the yes, that's right. The the elves are immortal. The humans are mortal. In other words, we die. Um, and and that that whole kind of difference between death and immortality gets played out with the way in the way he kind of portrays the the elves in the story. Um, I suppose uh, secular life today would have us believe, you know, um, uh, would want us to, to wants to extend our lives to live in history for as long as possible to be immortal. Um, the point really for 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 Tolkien is that to live in time forever, to live in history, is in fact according to Tolkien to live in what he called the long defeat, with only occasional glimpses of victory. Uh, history represents literally the the long defeat. Now you might say the long defeat of, of against what, and it's against sin, evil, suffering, and so on. So sin and evil never actually become eradicated in history, uh, according to to Tolkien. Uh, it's evil, sin, so on, whatever term you want to put on it, um, keeps coming back. Um, it's as if it's like a kind of a fungus that we can maybe eradicate at times, but it grows back and so on. And there's a constant struggle here. Um, and evil and sin are only vanquished, really, in heaven, in eternal life with God and not in time. And that's why the elves actually say in another one of his writings, the Samarillion, why they say death is the gift of Ulivatar to humankind, Ulivatar being God. So there's a prof this is a profound theological point um, that, you know, uh, and I suppose the irony is obvious, really. Um, we have to die in order to enter into the presence of God or the transcendent. Um, immortality is not something we should desire um, and so on. Um, and, and there are other themes in it as well. That um, And I was interested in the, the wisdom thing, because obviously if yeah. we were wise, we would have figured out that they could have just put Frodo on the back of one of those <laughs> eagles and flown him into Mount Doom. <laughs> and that would have been, that would have been <laughs> the shortcut. Isn't that right, Philip? Well, actually, you <laughs> see, that, but, but, but Jenny, Frodo actually is helped by another <laughs> lovely character in, in The Lord of the Rings. I think perhaps one of the most cuddliest and maybe the most, the, the nicest character of the whole lot, Samwise. Yeah. Samwise Ganji. He's the guy, he's the ultimate kind of loyal figure. He draws parallels with, you know, the, 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 the loyal disciple, John, who's at the foot of the cross. He's the guy who lifts Frodo up as they're going up the Mount, Mount Doom. He says, God, how am I going to do this? Mm. You know, I'll, I'll only be able to bring him a few steps. But when he picks him up, guess what happens? He's not heavy at all. And again, there's a parallel into the Gospels where Jesus says, you know, I'll make your burden light, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. Blah, blah, blah. So, Don't say that. So, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Blasphemy. Um, so, so Samwise really is, is, you know, is cast in the, the role of the legal or the loyal, um, um, the loyal, the loyal one. You know, he's he is uh, loyal to his master, come what may. Um, and that resonates, I think, deeply with with the with the gospel or within the gospel. And I suppose Samwise himself is the ultimate kind of example of, you know, the exaltation of the humble. 
you know, the first will be last and the last will be first and so on. So I think they're, they're from the theological point of view. Yes, they were the, very interesting. They were the themes I picked out. Mm. Um, and actually, we, ha- we are kind of running out of time completely now. But Hazel, would you mind just mentioning that other book? Because I just think this is a good Christmas one um, if people are looking for a book to buy for somebody else. Um, so just, I know we've only got a, like a minute, but okay, would you okay. mind? Yeah, the, the other book that I absolutely could not put down is called The Hate You Give. So it's about this thug life and it's about the racial injustices in America and it's the stereotyping of, you know, the black community and specific black communities um, where, you know, there is like, you know, sort of police brutality and things like that. And so it's following the uh, journey of this young girl who was brought up in the community and her mom tries to give him a better life and she pays for them to go to like um, uh, a posh sort of school. So she has to live a double life because when she's there, she has to totally transform her image and the way she speaks and what she talks about and so on. And then when she's at home, she has to click back into her sort of street character. Mm. And it shows this parallel, but then it also shows how um, her friend is actually shot by a police officer when he was, he was reaching for his comb, his Afro comb for his hair. And the guy just said, oh, he has a gun and he shot him. And it triggered a whole heap of events then where, you know, it resulted in rioting and all of that sort of stuff. And it just sort of, uh, it just highlights um, how easy it is for, I suppose, people in these neighbourhoods to get pulled into the drug culture and to the gang culture. But then it also shows that when they're stereotyped in this way, that it can have a very strong impact on how they will actually turn out. So it's, uh, you know, there's great humorous elements, there's great uh, references to pop culture and things like that. And it comes from the Tupac um, quote in the first place, you know, the hate you give and his definition of that. So it's a really, really good one and it appeals to the teenagers. So my daughter put me onto this one. And then there's a movie of the book as well, which is absolutely fantastic too. So this is one that you can't put down. So the hate you give by Angie Thomas. Yes, I just thought that might be a nice one. You know, if you're looking for a book, a real page turner, because you were saying we just could not put that book down. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So listen, we're going to finish up with that. That flew. Um, and thank you so much to everybody for coming in. And I want to wish you all lovely, merry, happy, healthy Christmas, <laughs> full of theology yeah, yeah. and God. And to you too. And other thank things. You. And other <laughs> things, I hope. <laughs> Lots of well. music. Lots of music. Yes. Maybe at the odd bit of wine, Krista. Absolutely. <laughs> so thanks a million and happy Christmas to everybody, all of our listeners as well. And thanks for supporting us throughout the year. And we will be back next semester. Thank you.